I've met so many incredible people in my life, a testament perhaps to my age, my career in advertising, the past 10 years on the conference tour, and of course this podcast. I find myself attracted to people with magnetic personalities, those who radiate positivity and possibility. They don't have to be extroverts, they just have to be people that offer solutions. Oprah versus chair throwing Jerry Springer, Kevin Newman versus shock jocks, leaders like Barack Obama or Nelson Mandela versus well you know who. The same holds true in the private sector, leaders who make things happen and have the courage and conviction to do what is right and to remain calm in the face of chaos. And life? Well today it's easy to criticize sitting in your lazy boy chair as you volley spitballs like a gatling gun. But tell me something important. Because it's only one you. That's the secret that everybody forgets. Offer a solution. If you step into who you really are, you have no competition in this world. You know, there's nobody who could do you, who could write like you, who could speak like you, who could tell the stories that you could tell, who can bring the expertise because you're this amalgam of all of the little particles that make up the unique you. Offer something that can help others. If we're trying to elevate our business, if we do speak our truth, and if we do allow all of those you know, aspects of ourselves to shine through in our brand, let's say, then we stand out. Because everybody else who hasn't figured out the secret are trying to assimilate. They're looking to the left and the right to figure out what everybody else is doing and say, well, that must be right. So I'm going to do that. And the people who have found their swagger go, oh, I'm just going to do me. My guest today is someone with a magnetic personality. First time I met her was many years ago, and I was captivated by her energy, her love for creativity, and her swagger. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. It wasn't staged or orchestrated, it was real. She knew she could put a positive dent in any situation. Create a campaign that needed to be created, a team that needed a lift, an agency that needed a win. And interesting enough, many years later, she writes a bestseller called Swagger, and her subtitle says it all. Unleash everything you are and become everything you want. Her name is Leslie M., and this is her story. Leslie M., welcome to Chatter That Matters. Wow, to have an intro that includes Oprah, Barack Obama, I'm not sure if that was intentional, but I will take it. I will take it. You are in that vein, I'm, and I think the audience is going to quickly find that out. Now, true confession, as you know, your sister Erica M. was on my radio show and podcast a year ago. I've been impressed by both of you for years, and I first was going to do a show with both of you, but I realized that was just too much content to try to pack into 40 minutes. So I'm glad to have you on now. Well, it is. The the two M sisters is a lot for anyone to take at one time. Let's begin with your family mythology. You were a phenom, some would argue, a handful from day one. So I hear you were sitting up at four months, walking at eight months, wrecking havoc for by 18 months. Is all of that true? Oh, and then some. The stories that were told around the kitchen table while I was growing up, it was always, and then Leslie did this crazy thing. And then my, my mother told a story about how I was months old. She, they were still counting my age in months. And she comes into the kitchen and to discover that I have figured out how to open the drawers next to the fridge to use them as steps to then climb up on top of the refrigerator where my mother wisely hid the cookie jar. And she found me sitting on top of the refrigerator 
eating cookies from the cookie jar. So you're a square peg that never fit any hole. What did your teachers think of you? I mean, when your parents must have been very happy to see you go off to school and to leave them alone for a couple hours every day. I think uh, 95% of them hated me with a profound passion because they didn't know what to do with me. I was, I was labeled unmanageable. I think I was unmanageable because the way that people tried to manage me was through control and dominance. I was, the more you tried to hold me down or hold me back, the more I would push against whatever it was. It didn't matter if it was good for me or right for me. It was the, the principle in, you know, in, in general. So I was super precocious and super bright. I got bored very easily. I for sure had undiagnosed ADHD. I created chaos all the time. I locked my teacher in the cupboard in grade two, but every once in a while, a teacher would come along who, who understood what I was all about, who understood my, my intention and my passion, because I was always for good, never hurt anybody. I would stick up for kids who were being bullied. I would put my body between them and the bully. I would take one on the chin. I was fearless, utterly fearless. And I could not stand for any kind of injustice. Oh, just just hold on now for a sec, because it seemed very self-righteous. But you did mention but a minute ago that you locked your, your teacher in the cupboard. What were you defending there? Well, she was being a bully and I wasn't having it. I wanted other kids to see that they were not without power. They were not victims. Because that's how I always felt as a kid. I felt the world was trying to tell me that I was powerless. I knew that I was not, and it made me mad. But every once in a while, a teacher would come along who would gentle me, who understood what it took to get through to me, and then I was their love puppy. I would do anything for them. My my music teacher all through my early grade school years was one of those, Mr. Mergler. And he understood that that music was my uh, my love language, and it was easier for me to express myself. And he would invite me into his music room during recess and, you know, during lunchtime. And he would play pop songs for me so I could sing. Those who were kind to me got kindness back. Were you ever part of a tribe? I remember in high school, I didn't really fit in with the jocks or the nerds. But, you know, I felt I was kind of cool in my Pierre Cardin shirts and Levi cords and big, thick leather bracelets. Was there anything that you wore or did to sort of define where you belonged? Well, I actually kind of did the opposite. I mean, it was back back in the day and I became a new wave punk in the very uh, early days of punk. And remember, I'm a suburban Montreal Jewish kid and I shaved the sides of my head and I had this faux hawk and it was dyed purple and people used to cross the street to avoid me. People would stare at me. They thought I was a complete freak because I was so ahead of my time, but I was following British trends. I, I love that. So in, in fact, in many ways, I made myself more of an outsider through that because there, there weren't that many people in Montreal who were doing the same thing. But ultimately, I found my people and I was a wild child. I was clubbing when I was 14. So what did your parents do to either encourage or discourage this sort of magic that was inside you? this inner swagger. They wanted to keep me safe. I think that was that was their biggest concern. It was that that they thought I was going to get into trouble because I was I was this this wild child. But they never told me to be anything other than I was. That was the beauty of of how, you know, my sister Eric and I were raised. We had in particular my mother who would just tell us to embrace everything that we were. Don't let the world tell you that this is good about you and that is bad about you and this is acceptable and that's not. If you use all of it 
you will become more powerful. And you have to listen to the voice inside of yourself. Be driven by good intention. We were very much conditioned to be positive and to be good. Where did your mother get that courage and conviction? Because back then, women were kind of streamlined into administrative roles or nursing or teaching, expected to kind of, you know, find their place in society in a subservient manner. She's programming you the other way. You know, I come from a very long line of very strong Jewish matriarchs. Independent, independent in business, way, way before women were encouraged to do that. They did it out of necessity. I also am the child of a Holocaust survivor, which I think helps you to appreciate the value of life and the beauty of it. Worry less about controlling it and more about living it fully. So I think that was very much my father's influence as he wanted to live his life fully. Didn't dictate to my mother what she could or couldn't do. My mother very much had her own passion and her own voice, did what what she wanted to do. Um, she was not someone to be held back anyway, because she was also a force of nature. And we just learned it by watching from our, our grandmother, our great aunt, my, uh, my mother, and then my sister as I was growing up. She was also a role model for me growing up. You left the nest early. You moved out of the house at age 17. And two years later, you moved to England. Yeah. What propelled you to sort of take this path in life when once again, society saying, you're supposed to go to school, Leslie, you're supposed to go to university. School was so not for me. I could not sit still. It's not the way that I learned. I tried university for about five minutes. It pissed me off, which, you know, anything very structured usually does piss me off ultimately because I go, why? Why are these rules in place? These seem arbitrary. This is not for everyone. I loved music and I was a singer. I started my first band when I was 17 and I wanted to go where that music was and that culture was. I knew that those people behind those mohawks and those piercings and all of that juicy British culture, I knew that those were my people. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Leslie Amp. She's a former TV host, songwriter, creative director, and the best-selling author of her book, Swagger. So what did you do in England when you arrived besides just wanting to be with that sort of punk scene? I looked for a music partner. Oh, they had want ads, people looking for bandmates and so on and so forth. And I looked for someone who was advertising for a singer that I felt might be right for me. I was kind of like a like a new wave soul singer, Alison Moyet from uh, from Yazoo or or Annie Lennox. Those were my my heroines. And I answered an ad in the music papers, went to this guy's house, knocked on the door, the door opened. And the person who stood in front of me was a guy named Robert Jones, who for sure changed the trajectory of my life, no question. We were music partners for years, but Robert was also the head of acquisitions at the UK's top independent film company. Those two things combined definitely put me on the path, which led me um, to where I am today. That sort of film direction also became very magnetic for you. Leslie, I'm saying I can do music, I can do script writing, I can do content. So talk to me about where you realized that you needed to have a lot of things feeding into you for you to sort of synthesize and put back in the world. I could always write. That was the thing that I was known for growing up was I was always a very strong writer and a very confident writer. And, um, and that, of course, played into being a songwriter. To write and translate that into songs is a big thing. When I started working 
working with Robert. We spent so much time together, hours and hours in the studio and rehearsing and whatever. And it's, sometimes it's really boring. And he would give me scripts and say, have a read of this and tell me what you think. Just, I just want your opinion. And I very quickly started to fall in love with the art form of, of screenplay and the structure of it. I was able to sort of decode it and understand the patterns and the nuance. And, and there is a very rigid structure to, to screenplay once you've read enough of them. And I fell in love with it. I uh, formally very quickly became a script reader. Basically, production companies and, and film companies get all of these scripts sent to them, and they need to be able to distill them down and figure out, is this a good one for us? Is it what we're looking for? So they hand it to a reader who reads the script. By the way, I read very, 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 very quickly. I read 2,400 words a minute. It's one, one of my crazy things that I learned how to do as a kid. And I would read a script, and then I had to distill the story down to a page. I had to write a log line, one word that described the entire plot, and then make a recommendation as to whether I thought it was worth doing. And you get paid. I was like, this is the best thing ever. So I started doing that to make money. I did that for Palace Pictures, which was Robert's company. I did it for Miramax, for Working Title. I was a Hugh Grant's reader for a while. I did all kinds of crazy stuff. It very much informed kind of what I wanted to do next as I was doing music. So what did you do next? Because we understand you've had this great run in the UK, but by age 36, you decided to come back to Canada. We're better for it, but what made you do that? This screenwriting thing led me to write um, ideas for TV shows. And I would go in and pitch them to production companies. And on one occasion, I went in and pitched this idea. It was actually to uh, a production company called Planet 24, owned by, remember Boomtown Rats? Remember that band? Of course. Um, Bob Geldof was one of the owners of, of Planet 24 and another gentleman named Wahid Ali, who is today Sir Wahid Ali for his contribution to, uh, television. So it was a, it was a huge production company, very, very successful. And I went in to pitch these TV shows, just these ideas that I had to see if I could sell one. And I'm doing my, you know, you know me, Tony, I'm doing my dog and pony. I'm all in right with my energy and my performance. And Wahid says to me, you know, you should be on camera. You would be great on camera. And I went, oh, yeah, clearly, of course, you're a genius. Of course, I should be on camera. And they hired me and gave me a talk show. I was like, this is my dream. But the problem was, I wanted to be White Oprah, and they wanted me to be Jerry Springer. And there was a vast disconnect. And after like four or five episodes, I sat down with Wahid and I said, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. This is not in keeping with my values. It's not what I believe in. I don't like it. I'm out. And so I left, but I realized that I could be on camera. And so I worked on camera for the next few years. I did a bunch of shows. I did a, a show called The Fashion Police. We were the OG Fashion Police. I did uh, a show called The Fast Food Show, a live late night show called The Warehouse. But in the UK, when you're on camera a lot, you get all of the downsides and none of the upsides. You get kind of famous without any of the, the, the pluses of being famous. I realized I don't want this. This is not, this is not what I wanted. It was really a huge eye-opener for me because I always thought that my path was leading towards being famous or using my charisma for some, you know, big, huge thing, music stages and whatever. And I discovered, nope, nope, it's not what I want to do. So uh, you can't really unfamous yourself. You pack it up and you go home where nobody knows who you are. And so you come back to Canada. How did that feel? Did you come back as a hero, like you'd conquered the nation, or did you come back saying, there's a lot more I need to do? Oh, yeah, I was terrified. A piece of my life had been lived, and I lived a lot of life in there. I mean, I did crazy things. I produced a documentary for the for the BBC, this whole PR company that I started on the side. I mean, I did everything that you could do. 
But when I came home, I felt like I had no grown-up saleable skills. I didn't really know how things operated in Canada because remember, I left when I was 19. So all of my formative adult years had been lived in the UK. So it was very weird. And I also came to live in Toronto because my family was here, but I, I knew nobody. I was starting from absolute scratch at 36 and I had never worked in the corporate environment ever, ever, ever. So I was terrified. I thought, what the hell am I going to do next? Nobody's going to want me. I'm too, I'm too old and I don't have grown up skills. You become a f- absolute force in sort of this Madison Avenue, this, this sort of the golden days of advertising. How did that come about? I am someone who, who understands the power of transferable skills. So you don't have, you know, a resume particularly, but you do have a lot of stuff that you know, and you got a lot of transferable skills. They're, they're, you know, if it works here, it's going to work somewhere else. So I knew I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I understand media intimately. I've worked in all kinds of media. I guess that would fly in advertising. It made sense to me. It, it didn't seem like it was that far a stretch. Only problem was I was 36 years old. I never worked in advertising and I had no portfolio. What do I have? I've got chutzpah, I got swagger, and I have determination and I have storytelling skills. So I picked the, the biggest agency in Canada at the time. It's McCann, right? Was, was McCann. Found out who the creative director was on the digital side because I knew it was the new frontier, right? It was, that was the era where things were just shifting into digital. Every single day, I just dialed the phone. And he didn't answer and he didn't answer and he didn't answer until he finally answered. I think it took me about 10 days of calling multiple times a day. I said to him, you want me? He said, excuse me, excuse me, what? I said, you want me? He, he said, I do. This was, this was Carlos Garavito. You want me bad. Let me tell you why you want me. And I told him why I would be an asset. So he was intrigued. He said, come in and talk to me. We had this amazing conversation that lasted for hours. He's a very educated, very erudite, very creative man. And we talked about everything but advertising kind of thing. And then he walked me down the hall to to meet Peter Monk, who was the then president of, of McCann uh, Digital. He walked me down the hall to meet their head of strategy, uh, a woman named Lee Himmel, who we both know, who was also amazing. They sat me down after that and they said, okay, we're going to give you a shot. We're going to hire you as an intermediate copywriter. So if just for people that are not involved with advertising, an intermediate copywriter sounds important, but there's a lot of people in it. And this industry is a tough gauntlet to get to the top. You get to the top in a nanosecond. How did that come about? The superpower that I had was people. I understood people. I've always understood people's psychology. I know how to talk to people. I understand what they want. I can read them. You know, when people are in pain, I can feel it. uh, And I'm very good at figuring people out. That is not a strength in advertising. It is not something that most people in advertising are particularly good at. The way that people rise through the ranks, it's the meritocracy of your creative skills. Very often, the better you are as a creative, the less good you are at peopling. Because it, it tends to be a more introverted skill or it's, it's a, you know, it's a kind of self-serving skill to be highly creative. No shade, not, not at all, but it is not something that breeds leadership qualities. You know, you get really good at what you do by being internally focused and by thinking and yes, collaborative, but not necessarily by being a very strong leader. And we're not taught how to do that in the ad business. Well, I already had that. I knew that I'd worked in all of these, these very exciting collaborative environments. I understood people. And, um, I kind of became this little, um, I was like the little 
kind of mole to the to the then creative director. And I would tell him when when I recognized that there was discord, I would say, hey, you might want to talk to this team because I think they're struggling with this. Hey, I've noticed that. Hey, you know, whatever. I just because he wasn't good at it. He was he was a total fabulous creative introverted geek. He had zero people skills. And he really appreciated the fact that I was there for the the greater good of the organization. And I just would would feed him this information. I was already senior cooperator by then, whatever. And when uh, he left, he recommended me for the role. And, uh, and I got the role. And I stepped into it and went, okay, let's go. Let's go. I was a big grown-up. So it wasn't daunting for me. Um, and that's how I became creative director. We come back. Leslie Ann talks about writing her bestseller, Swagger, Unleash Everything You Are and Become Everything You Want. The very people that you're working with are saying, I feel like I'm a failure. I feel like I don't know how to do it. I feel like I don't have it together. Everybody else has it together. I mean, look at you. You have it so together. And the best thing that you can do for them is to go, girl, no, I don't. You know, it's my work and it's my expertise. It's my focus. But believe me, there are days when I am not productive and you will have those days too. And it's all good. I'm just going to help you to next level your game because I've learned how to do it. And right away, the person goes, okay, pressure off, you know, pressure off because we're the same and now we can connect and now I can speak my truth to you. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. For the third consecutive year, J.D. Power has ranked RBC highest in client satisfaction among Canada's five big banks. These are challenging economic times. You need a bank you can trust with the realities of today and your dreams of tomorrow. Bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and RBC will bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. I knew that the message was bigger. I knew that the power and the potential for swagger was much bigger than me. So I just feel like I'm a conduit because that's what I'm all about. I'm tough mother love, you know? So I wanted to hold people's hands, but give them a little smack on the bottom and go, go get it. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Leslie Ann. She's a former TV host, songwriter, creative director, and the best-selling author of her book, Swagger. 36, you come back to Canada, you have to move to a new city, no network, really don't feel you have transferable skills. Perseverance, you get your job, fast track creative director. But the next time I hear about you, you're starting a training company. What prompted that? Because most people in your position that get to that creative director will spend the next two decades winning awards, going to cons, living the life of celebrity that this persona of being a creative director has in the advertising world. You didn't want that. Why? It was really my first experience working in the corporate world. And, and you know, a lot of people think that advertising is not corporate. It is. In its own way, it is. And certainly when you work for one of the largest holding companies, you know, on the planet, there are politics, there are issues, there are nuances, there's all of that, that stuff, there's expectations and so on. I saw what it did to people. The pressures and the rigors and the stresses and the politics and the expectations for clients and how the bottom line was king and all of those things that we know about advertising. I watched the impact that it had on the human beings that were in service of it. Good human beings who just wanted to do their good work. They just wanted to be creative and tell their stories and express themselves. And they were getting a serious beat down every single day by the environment. Uh, their level of confidence was in the toilet. They weren't 
being equipped with the skills that they needed. There weren't people around to teach them because we're a very different breed in the ad business, you know? And if, if you, you know, to be able to come and train us on how to do things, you better come correct. You better know our world or we're going to make mincemeat out of you. We are the, we are the great manipulators of the world and we don't stand for it. So you have to be so, so, so smart and have such insight in order to teach us something, right? And I couldn't do it from the inside because I was too busy putting out client fires and running around doing the work. I'm down in the weeds. I'm whatever. And I just watched my people suffer. And I also saw how it changed me. I became progressively angry. I became disenfranchised. I uh, became paranoid. All of these things that I'd never experienced in my life as a result of working in that environment. And I came home one day and I said to my husband, I feel like I'm a super, I'm a superhero who's using her powers for evil instead of good. And I believe that I could help these people better from the outside than I could ever do from the inside. They don't need me in this role. They need me to help them be better at their jobs the very next day and to feel like they have some support that has no agenda. He was like, oh, but, but Leslie, uh, you, you hate training. And I said, I know. And he said, and you're untrainable. I said, I know. But if I could create experiences for people just like me, I'd probably be onto something. And so that's what I did. I, I quit my job and I started a training company. And I remember when, when you and I did some work because of, when I first started my training company, I had to make money, right? It was, I didn't happen. I didn't start making money training in the first five minutes. So I had a little creative consultancy and I, um, came in and met you because people had talked to you about me and me to you. I remember you saying to me, you remind me so much of me. And I was like, oh my God, Tony Chapman saying that I, that I remind him of him. Oh my God, I'm going to be great in this world. I remember being so flattered by that. You hired me right away. You were like, yes, come do creative work with us, you know, all the rest of it. But you said to me, I remember you said, I think you're going to get tired of this training thing. I don't know. I, I kind of am loving it. And it just became something so much bigger and more profound than I ever ever imagined. Give the audience a sense of it because you became a rock star. And you know, Canadians sometimes struggle with when there's a tall poppy, but boy, your poppy was tall. I mean, you work with Google, you work with some of the top organizations. They just wanted your energy, your creativity, your sense of positivity, which I really celebrate because a lot of times when a female has these attributes, it's a punitive words that are used to describe it. Where a male might get away with it. And you started to break that norm and saying it has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with talent. So give us a, give the audience a, the highlight reel of that time in training. I think my intention was so clear. I think when your intention and your purpose is so, so, so clear, that's the first step, right? So I wanted people to feel better and I wanted to help them and I wanted it to be so, so actionable, so visceral, soulful, authentic, no bullshit, because I understood that the only way they were going to allow me to change them is if they opened up their hearts and their minds to me. That's the only way you can get in there and start rearranging stuff to help them see the world differently. When you get that access, you can then start layering on skills and knowledge. You have to build trust. You have to walk the talk, what it can look like and feel like when you feel good and when you believe in yourself and so on. And I fell so profoundly and deeply in love with every single human being that I went into the room with. We would cry on a regular basis. It became a joke with combustion 
you know, training. Our first, my first company was 27 Marbles, which evolved into three training, which evolved into combustion. Um, and the, the joke was, well, what's the, what's the cry factor in this particular workshop? You know, how likely are you to cry? And the crazy thing was that I didn't really have a plan for growth. I just knew that I wanted to make sure that if people were going to train for me, that they had the same sensibilities as I did. So we, so I grew that team very, very slowly. I never did any advertising or marketing in any way, shape or form. My entire business was built word of mouth. I have trained probably the top 50 agencies on the planet. And then it exploded out into companies that I thought, oh my God, I, I didn't think these people would want what we do with this presentation skills, communication, leadership, um, creativity skills. But before I knew it, I was training Microsoft and Google. We developed and delivered Google's global marketer training program. So talk to me about this young girl who wanted to become Oprah to do a talk show and couldn't is now suddenly become in many ways kind of the Oprah of swagger. After being in all of those rooms with all of those beautiful people for so many years, I started to see consistencies of, of mindsets, uh, behaviors, consistency of ahas. What stopped people? What was getting in their way when they started to, to speak their truth to me, when they started to be revealed to me and trusted me? And I could see things shifting. I used to say to them, that's it right there. I see it. That's your swagger. That's your thing. And I didn't mean swagger in the show offy, arrogant in your face kind of thing. No, no, no. Like I was like antithetical to that. I meant swagger in your ability to manifest who you really are and then hold on to it. And when people were able to do that, everything changed for them. Once they understood that their power lay in their authenticity. So I started to work with that and go deeper into that in the work that I was doing. And it evolved the kind of training that I was do, that I was doing and the messages and the exercises that I was doing and so on. And I didn't want that experience to be limited to corporations who could pay for it for their people. I wanted anybody and, and, and everybody to get access to the information and then they could do with it what they wanted. So I wanted to not just write a book that, you know, was inspirational, which is great. No shade to inspirational books, but because of my training background, I wanted it to be as close an approximation to having me in the room with them, holding their hand and taking them through these experiences. So the book is filled with exercises and here's what to do and here are the steps that you're going to take and here's what you're going to do if it doesn't work out and here's what you're going to circle back to and so on and so forth. And I shared all these amazing stories um, of the people who I'd worked with over years. And you know what was so beautiful, Tony? When I reached out and said, I would love to include your story, would you be willing to do that? Every single person said yes. And every single person said that I could use their real name. That makes me cry when I think about that. For somebody that doesn't like a lot of structure and also someone that I see loves to walk into a room, feel the room and then decide the song she's going to sing. How tough was it to put pen to paper and actually do this book? It wasn't that because remember I come from a background of screenplay, right? I was, I was script editor, script doctor, um, you know, over years. So I understand the structure of writing. So that was a huge asset. I, I realized after that, that was a benefit that so many writers don't, A, writers don't have, B, you know, entrepreneurs and, and thought leaders, they don't have that at all. So they're flying blind when it comes to writing a book. The challenge for me was I started to write it, got into it, everything was great. And then my mother got very, very sick. My sister and I dropped everything and focused on taking care of, of our mother because she didn't want anyone to know that she was sick. My mother was a very 
while a very, very public person, she was also very private about things like that. How important was that time as you look and reflect on your life, having that time where you just said, I'm putting everything on hold. And you were putting on, both of you and your sister, you know, it wasn't like you were, you know, leaving administrative jobs. You were both in the process of creating the next new thing. How much now do you think that that was incredible time well spent, not just for your mom and doing the right thing, but just in terms of helping to define who you are? It, there was no question in our minds that that this was what we were going to do because our, our mother um, was and still is the greatest force in our lives. She is our hero. For what she gave us, it was the very, very, very least that we could do in return. She'd been sick for five years and it had been very up and down and we'd been there throughout, but then she got, you know, very, very sick. Um, we got to have the most incredible conversations with my mother, as you can imagine, um, because she knew she was dying. And we've always been very open in our family and, and able to, um, to, to speak our truth. So we were able to speak our truth about that as well. So we, we learned exactly what she wanted. She was able to say to us the words that every child wants to hear, um, about what kind of children we were for her and how much she appreciated, which is a gift that most people don't get. So um, for that alone, I would do it all over again to be able to have heard those words um, from her. We kept her safe uh, because it's a terrifying, it's a terrifying experience dying. It's a, a true test to your values. Um, and I would, as I said, I would do it again in a heartbeat. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Leslie Ann. She's a former TV host, creative director, and the best-selling author of her book, Swagger. As we come near the end of the interview, this incredible tumbleweed that you are, but each time you tumble, you plant roots and do something quite extraordinary. So you're a tumbleweed that grows versus just tumbles. I understand what's next in fueling your creative passion is not just words to paper, but paint to canvas. Tell me a little bit about this whole new, how this painting thing came about. Oh my God, it's the craziest thing. I mean, I spent all my time on planes, traveling the world, you know, doing keynotes and training all over the world and all of this stuff. And aside from boxing, because I love boxing, I'm a competitive boxer. Well, let's start talking just quickly. You became a competitive boxer on a creative challenge where I think, wasn't it not for charity you were going to box somebody else? I uh, joined the fight team for the fight to end cancer. Um, and so I, uh, I started boxing at 48 and I joined, I, I auditioned for the, the fight team at 51. And I fought my first sanctioned amateur bout in a, uh, at a black tie event in front of 900 people. <laughs> so I've never had a hobby and I don't like to sit still. And during the pandemic, I was losing my ever loving mind because everything just stopped. And my husband, who's very wise and the opposite of me, um, said, maybe you should get some paints. And I just laughed because I have zero artistic talent, a lot of creative talent, zero. I can't draw. I can't paint it to the point where if you played Pictionary with me, you don't want to be on my team because you're going to lose. Like I'm that bad. And he bought me paints anyway. He bought me some acrylic paints. And I painted a couple of ugly trees and I was like, I hate this. And then I decided I'm going to try and paint a self-portrait just for fun. So I sketched this thing out and I painted it and it was not very good, but it was fun. I really enjoyed the process. And then I thought that makes sense that I would like to paint portraits because I love people. I wanted to inspire other people because I was having such a good time. So I started to post 
um, the, the paintings on social media and just talk about, here's what I learned today about painting and here's whatever and just do it and it's fun and don't judge. And, and I learned a lot about my own, you know, creativity through the process. And then I swear to God, Tony, people started to lose their minds and they started to ask if they could buy the portraits. I was like, shut up. You could just have a portrait. I'm just, you know, whatever. And one of my friends said, no, I want to respect your work, to which I laughed. He said, can I buy one of the paintings in exchange for a donation to charity? And I said, now you're talking my language. You sure as hell can. I have now painted, I don't know how many, but probably about 60, uh, 60 portraits. And I've sold probably about 15 for, for charity. And they're, they're not cheap. Other people in my life have gotten so inspired by what I've been doing is they've also picked up paint. And one of my friends, for example, who lost uh, his son during the pandemic, whose his son passed away, said that he was so inspired by my painting that he picked up um, his a medium for the first time. And he's now painting these incredible, incredible paintings. And that it's the only thing that he's discovered that's helped him through his grief. So you never know. You never, ever know. I mean, the secret really is tap into everything that you have to leave nothing on the table and then to share it with people to share what you learn, to share your experience, to share your time if people want to talk about their stuff and their experience, and just to be a catalyst and a vessel, a catalyst and a vessel, to be there to support. You know, I'm a powerful, powerful human, and I can contain a lot of stuff. And so people can come to me with their stuff, and I'm strong enough to to contain it and to lift it. And once you know that about yourself, you got an obligation in this life. To do that. Do you feel now that you fit in or has the world finally realized that they have to fit you in? When I found out that my book hit the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller lists, I thought I was going to be elated. I mean, is that not the ultimate validation for an author? I thought I was going to dance around in my underwear and scream and yell. And I had a huge wave of emotion, but let me tell you, it was not elation. I was mad. Why am I mad? And I realized that it was because I had to fight so damn hard to not let the world change me, to be someone or something that I wasn't, and to force me to be someone or something that I wasn't, to tempt me into making it easier. You know, I was mad at all those people who tried to fit me into the box, and I, but I was more mad about the fact that I had to fight so hard to make sure it didn't happen. So now when I look at my life, I don't think of it in terms of, do I fit in? Have I arrived? All I think of is the legacy that I'm leaving. And legacy has no form. It, it lives in the hearts and the minds and the memories of the people who you've touched along the way. And all I care is that all of the people that I've encountered in this life um, have been changed for the better for the time that they spent with me. That's That's all that matters. And I think in order to do that, you can't fit in so well. I think you have to break out in order to achieve that. Last, I always end my show with my three takeaways. Number one is you've always chased dreams, but you've never lost your moral compass. And I love that story about, I can just imagine you flying to LA because they're trying to pitch you for a talk show and you're coming back and saying, but this talk show is not my dream. And it's powerful advice for people to realize that don't get seduced because somebody else wants to grab your dream and change it in a way that you don't feel comfortable with. The second one is this sense of this feel, this this 
heart that radiates from early days where it's about the people. Are their eyes shining? Their hearts beating? Do they feel like they belong? And, and turning that, first of all, into a career in advertising to training. And, and I think so much of that came from the Holocaust survivor, your dad, and this incredible human being that, uh, and these matriarchs before her in terms of your mom and your grandmother and stuff. And the last thing is just the sense of never stopping, this manifesting, this, this sense that it was never about you. It was never about my celebrity. It was never about who I am. It was always about, did I change people for the better? Do they feel different? Do they cry because they're feeling for the first time? And as successful as you are in, in terms of your best-selling book, Swagger, and everything else, that humility is something I think why the world does love you and why your legacy will be one saying, like I do, I am so happy that I got to meet Leslie Hamm. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Oh, Tony, just to spend time with you is delicious. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Carmela Trombetta. Not only is she a VP at RBC, recently recognized as one of Canada's most powerful women. Why? Because of recognition of her community involvement in Hamilton. Carmela, welcome. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Leslie M's path in life is one that she set versus society or parents' norms. She didn't go to university. She went off to pursue a career in songwriting in England, knocked on doors and became a successful songwriter, reviewed scripts for the biggest film companies, hosted a television show. How important do you think it is for young people to open their minds to taking on experiences no matter where they come, just to get sort of lessons in life? I think it's really, really important to continue and pursue continuous learning, regardless of what point you're at in life. Experiential learning is really important. It can come at different points and stages in your career, and maybe the importance to push yourself, know yourself, and push yourself outside of those comfort zones and learning, leaning into those opportunities, I think it really creates great experiences and learning and it can't be um, discredited. You're such an advocate, obviously, for leveling the playing field, not only for in terms of women and ethnicity, but also small business. What does Canada need to do better to get to the point where we no longer have to talk about it? It just is the wonderful reality of life that everybody has an equal shot at whatever opportunity they want to pursue. Who is Canada? We are Canada have that core value of inclusivity, openness. It does start with every single individual and every single conversation. We need corporate Canada to contribute. And, you know, my organization, I think it's is a living truth of that. It's not just one of our core values. We put a lot of energy and we walk the talk. And I think that's really, really important. Let's talk about RBC. I mean, it's mission, help clients thrive and communities prosper. And you're, you're somewhat of a poster child. The Women's Executive Network just gave you this recognition as one of Canada's most powerful women based on what you're doing in your community in Hamilton. So share with us some of the reasons why you are uh, one of their stars. It stems back to finding the purpose of what we're doing every day. And if you can link what you do every day to a purpose, a higher purpose, that's perfect. So I've been involved both externally at RBC with the community for many, many years, but not because I have to be, because I want to be. I, I was born and raised in, in Hamilton. I went to McMaster. I never left the city. Um, my husband's a small business owner in the community. I made a decision many, many years ago to be involved in that. 
in every way that I could be. It started small. There's been many, many organizations. I've sat on uh, boards. I've I, I chaired boards, the Chamber of Commerce, which was nine years. I think about the initiatives and the advocacy that I participated in and helped move along. For me, it's been important because I'd like to leave this place a lot better than when I came here and have a little piece of that to kind of share with um, my grandkids and, and their kids. I would just encourage people to find that purpose for themselves because if you can get that alignment closely align it to what's important to you and live it it just makes life so much greater Carmela, you are amazing congratulations on your acknowledgement the work you're doing in hamilton your love for small business your love for leveling the playing field and actually having your own swagger thanks for joining me in chatter that matters great to be here thanks tony chatter that matters has been a presentation of rbc Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. This is Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.